0: My name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And today we're trying to tackle a titan. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, finally on the Important Cinema Club,
1: we're talking about Nick Cage. I'm amazed we haven't done this yet. It is the lowest hanging fruit we've done yet. Everybody has seen 30, 40 Nicolas Cage movies. Everybody has an opinion about him. Probably one of the most talked about, thought about, memed actors of our lifetime. We're going
0: to treat him seriously. We're not going to give you our top 10 craziest Cage moments. We're going to say. Justin,
1: how to get burned. How to get burned. How to get burned.
0: (laughs) Is that from one of his pictures, Will? Oh, I get. That's from World Trade Center, right? Yes, that's right. We're going to be talking about Nick Cage as an actor. And you said last week that you consider maybe he's a little overrated
1: yes because i'm a galaxy brain right now i'm cosmic brain but for a lower brain level they might say he's underrated nicholas cage makes many films he makes many bad films probably makes five or six movies a year one of which might be worth watching uh even some of his more famous performances are unusual. He's easy to make fun of. We've all seen those uh, ironic Nicolas Cage gifts and memes and supercuts. And he's the sort of person who certainly remember in the 2000s seeing Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans when that movie came out. He got very good reviews for it and I I could be imagining this, but it came after a run of pretty bad Nicolas Cage movies like Wicker Man and Bangkok Dangerous. He was making a lot of seemingly paycheck type Vehicles with odd performances in them, and when Bad Lieutenant: Port of Call, New Orleans came out, there was this sense of like, oh, okay, he knows what he's doing. He's working at some some other level, and oftentimes, in making the case for Nick Cage, you'll hear people say well, in addition to the fact that he owes the tax man a lot of money and has to make a lot of movies. Listen, he made a lot of bad real estate deals and he's got to dig himself out of that hole somehow. But he's also somebody who is is beyond striving for Oscar glory. And in fact, he's looking for new textures, new pitches and peaks in his performance style. I'm fumbling my metaphors a lot there. He's... Doing all of these B-grade, under-the-radar, straight-to-VOD movies because he can experiment in them.
0: I think that you want to believe that and that when you see these movies, we're trying to project on them like this is why he must have taken this picture. And then oftentimes you'll see a sleepy Nicolas Cage going through the motions and you're like, oh, it was probably a Bulgarian producer who offered him a certain percentage (laughs) flat that he could take
1: to make this film. And he said, we only needed you for a week, Cage. And that's the performance that you get. There are a lot of things that I think are potentially very exciting about Nicholas Cage. I love it when he is interviewed. Even when he's talking about a lot of schlock, he'll give strange reasons for why he made the movie or why he gave the performance that he gave. I found an interview that he did with Collider when Season of the Witch came out. This interview has always stuck in my head. I'm going to quote from it. He said, It was another chance to work with Charles Roven. We made City of Angels together, and I wanted to go back into the supernatural with him again. We did that on City of Angels, and now again with Season of the Witch. I find that these invisible forces are really fascinating and interesting for me to work with in terms of the characters I play. It gives me a little bit more range to get abstract. Plus, the idea of playing a knight was something that I had been doing ever since I was a child in my backyard, so this gave me a chance to do it as a child's dream come true. I mean, you hear that, and you think, oh man, he wants to explore the supernatural. Perhaps this movie will give him a chance to be abstract. Then you see Season of the Witch, and it's a piece of shit, and he's bad at it. Oh
0: no, I love Season of the Witch. (laughs) It is... I saw it in movie theaters, and I was high-fiving my pal I was with. It is, um... Not a good movie, but it has Nicolas Cage fighting uh, CGI witches
1: with his good pal, Ron Perlman. Okay, I saw it on DVD alone, so I probably had a bad experience.
0: (laughs) Oh, I have to point out, too, that the theater was empty other than us. So it was one of those great movie experiences. I think that there's value in Cage saying you know, the specific reason why he took something, it doesn't ha- always have to be like, well, I wanted that great meaty role that would finally give me a chance to run down the beach like Robert De Niro, which is something that you always hear people like Jackie Chan and Sam Hung say all the time. Nick Cage won his Oscar making Leaving Las Vegas and at that point, he doesn't need to prove himself in those ways anymore. He can go off into different directions for very specific reasons that sometimes will only be his.
1: I heard him say once that he did Bangkok Dangerous because he was interested in the idea of being directed by twin brothers, and he thought this might bring out something new in him. I mean, I I heard him I heard an interview, I can't remember where it was, this was 10 years ago, so I could be misquoting, but when Drive Angry came out, it was a 3D movie, and I remember him saying somewhere, I was attracted to the idea of doing a 3D movie, I wanted to see what I could do with the form, I wanted to dance with the camera. I love
0: that, man! That sounds like somebody that, you know, whether you like Drive Angry or not, there's actually thought that is not even that abstract. Like, the idea of being in a 3D movie, how does that affect performance, right? I mean, he said stuff like you know, I prefer Super 16 because there's like a different feel than 35, or I want to make movies that give you that Super 8 feeling, that feeling of
1: being in the backyard with your brother, just making movies and that anything could happen. One of the other things I think that's potentially exciting about him is that he doesn't draw any distinction between uh, high and low art. You keep saying potentially exciting. Can't you just say exciting? I say potentially exciting because it's exciting until you watch one of these direct-to-video movies, but you know what? It it is exciting. You know, the
0: way he approaches it, whether it's exciting for the viewer or not, I don't think that really
1: bothers him sometimes. So it is exciting that, for example, I've heard him cite Marlon Brando as an influence, but he also cites Jerry Lewis. He cites Bruce Lee, uh, Max Schreck... You know, Klaus Kinski, these uh, very disparate actors are influences on him. Cartoon characters are influences on him. One of his most interesting contributions to the art of film acting is to try to liberate it from naturalism. He talks a lot about being influenced by silent film, and he's—you know, when people talk about silent film acting— People often, often, you know, say, Oh, it's a bit outmoded. It's very theatrical. And they, you know, like they hadn't discovered naturalism yet. They hadn't grown into film acting, but it's like he wants to bring the most excessive, the least natural silent film acting into his own toolbox. And you can see that like Vampire's Kiss. Well,
0: I've heard him say stuff like, you know, naturalism has its limits. You can only go so far with something that feels completely real. So if you try to approach it from different directions to generate some kind of emotional reaction in an audience, then you're doing new stuff. I mean, in that New York Times magazine interview, he says stuff like, but you know, I will only go as far as the director wants me to go because at a certain point at this time in his career, he understands that it's like the director's vision that he is supplementing, that he's working for the director as opposed to when he made stuff like Vampire's Kiss that he was just a wild man, he said, and he was like method and he was very difficult to work with. But going even further back, before we talk about that movie, you know, it's important to say that Nicolas Cage was born into a filmmaking family.
1: <laughs> uh, and which family was that?
0: It was the Coppolas, because he is the nephew of
1: Francis Ford. I've heard of him. I can't quite place it. But... He
0: has said that he was not rich when he was a kid, and that like he would have to take the bus to school, and all the other kids had like Ferraris or Porsches, and that actually kind of like influenced his acting style, especially when he got started. You uh, like to say that Con Air is his version of what it would have felt like to be the coolest guy in high school. And he could finally bring that version to the movie screen. He is
1: interesting for the fact that he changed his last name. His real name is Nicholas Coppola, but he changed it to Cage so that he w- he could escape the shadow of his uncle. I mean, he did act in Peggy Sue got married very early in his career.
0: And the outsiders. and he And he basically got his shot from his uncle. <laughs> you know, it's arguable- I don't know if you've seen Peggy Sue Got Married, but Nicolas Cage gives an insane performance in that, much to the chagrin of uh,
1: his co-star. I have seen Peggy Sue Got Married, and... You know, the thing about some of these Nicolas Cage performances, some of the more extreme ones, particularly early on, is he sometimes seems to be working at cross-purposes with the material. You mentioned that he now considers himself subservient to the director's vision. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, okay, so Peggy Sue Got Married is a movie that I don't have any particular affinity for, and I'm sort of— amused that his performance in it exists just as like one of these weird eccentricities of film history because like it's it's the main thing i remember about that movie. Yeah, you
0: probably wouldn't remember much if it wasn't for that Nick Cage performance.
1: No, but that doesn't necessarily mean i think it is a successful experiment. Well,
0: maybe we're just not at that cosmic brain level yet to understand what he was doing. I mean, after Peggy Sue, he was in Moonstruck which was a massive hit and he still got to do his big giant thing in that as well. And eventually he ended up doing Vampire's Kiss, which is probably the, like, urtext for insane Nicolas Cage performances. Before that, he had done, like, really dramatic stuff in, like, Alan Parker's Birdie, where he plays the cool jock character in it, who is, like, kind of the straight man of the movie. And he gives a very centered performance. But Vampire's Kiss, he is off the wall. This is
1: another one I I feel... Sort of similar to his performance in this, as I feel, his performance in Peggy Sue Got Married, where, but but sort of, but different, because Peggy Sue Got Married, there's a whole movie surrounding his performance, you can kind of, you can focus on other elements of that movie, but Vampire's Kiss is basically a one-man show, and it lives and dies on this very strange and unusual performance. It's like, I mean, I know there's there's a lot going on in Vampire's Kiss thematically, but it is first and foremost, this like demo reel for the outer limits of Nicolas Cage's talents.
0: What's curious about the film is that Like, at one point, it was gonna star Dennis Quaid. At another point, it was like another of the Brat Pack. And I think that version of the movie would have been very off putting, with the subject matter of Nicolas Cage plays like a literary agent, rich guy douchebag who believes he's bitten by a vampire and is turning into a vampire throughout the movie. Like, one of the most noticeable things about the film is Nicolas Cage's crazy accent in it, which is. A mix of, like,
1: British transatlantic and surfer dude. And not for a second does it feel like his real voice. Not for a second are you convinced that he's not, like, doing an accent. And Nick Cage
0: said that he made that choice with the director because he wanted the character to appear goofy, and he actually stole it from his father, who, when he was a kid, his father took on that voice because he was a professor, and he thought that he needed to sound more important. And Nick Cage... Thought that if he did the voice in Vampire's Kiss, when the violence started, it would be funny and pathetic, as opposed to being completely threatening. And then you have to follow this like despicable character
1: throughout the entire movie. Yeah, the performance that reminded me of most was Damon Wayans in Bamboozled, where it's so stylized and abrasive that, you know, it's not like, for example, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street, where you can be sort of seduced by him. It's this very off-putting and and very like I, I don't know if Brechtian is the right word. Maybe that's just a fancy word to throw around. But it's like you are constantly aware that like he's he's a, first of all an actor giving a performance and an actor giving a performance as uh, a ridiculous bad absurd man. Like you're constantly kind of on the outside. You know, you're you're not seduced by it. I would say though that by
0: the end of the movie, there's a scene where he has like a final fantasy sequence with a psychiatrist. And I think that his character has been pushed so far at that point that it does get that pathetic kind of drama that, like, this is where he ended up. Because, like, that sequence you're intercutting from, like, a awful looking Nicolas Cage who just did a slapstick, like, run into a wall, intercut with him with his hair slicked back and normal. And the contrast between both of them in this kind of climactic, dramatic moment works because you've... Ended up spending all this time with this
1: crazy loser goofball. I find his performance in this movie a little bit difficult to evaluate because, like, it it starts at 10 and it just keeps going up. And I find it a very exhausting performance and yet if i say that i think it's unsuccessful i'm not even sure i really agree with that because like it or not this is a performance that stays in your head it's like the ultimate example of something um the the movie the movie is remembered at all because it's this extreme the movie is interesting as just a record of of this whatever this is i
0: think that like
1: most people's reaction to the performance
0: is like well this is not what film performances are supposed to look like And because it's not this, then I'm not sure how to deal with this. Like, it's so big, and we never see performances like this in movies that treat it not as a joke. Like, the film is shot like any other film, and there's Nick Cage in the middle of this, doing this crazy theatric throughout. And, you know, the fact that he starts at 11, I think only works because you know, you're like, how much crazier can he get? And then when things start to turn violent, it's like, oh, no, this is not fun to hang out with anymore. (laughs) Like, he's doing all this crazy stuff, and now, like, it's gone past the point of, you know, numbness into a, r- a weird realness that you're like, I don't really want to be with
1: this person anymore. But I think that there's a reason that you don't see screen acting like this very often, which because it it doesn't work. It's an alienating experience to see a performance like but this. But
0: what do you mean by work in this context? Like that you feel bad for the
1: character that it's happening to? Um, Because uh, you're you're constantly, I think, at a remove. It, it, it's hard to be engrossed in the movie. You're constantly, being reminded that this is a performer making very strange choices. Oh,
0: every second of this movie, like even when he eats that like cockroach off the table, you are instantly aware that this is Nick Cage, the actor picking up a real cockroach. So your reaction will be, oh, my God, I can't believe he did that. Not, oh, wow, the character ate a cockroach. What does that mean with the
1: progression of what's going on? So I like Vampire's Kiss as a record of an experiment and as uh, a feature-length YouTube freaks out supercut. I would not put this in my list of favorite Nicolas Cage performances.
0: I would say that if Dennis
1: Quaid had started the movie, no one would be talking about it. <laughs> no, but what about something like uh, Christian Bale in American Psycho, which you could also compare this to? I mean, that's a performance that is also heavily stylized and unusual, but I I find it easier to kind of. I find it easier to go along with that performance and become engrossed in it. I would argue
0: that the movie around him is goofier than Vampire's Kisses. And I think that because of that, it's easier to swallow. You know, there
1: are some Nicolas Cage movies where I definitely think he's a lot better than the material around him. He gets a lot of flack for The Wicker Man which I revisited within the last year. And I actually think he's kind of good in The Wicker Man. Like, I think the performance really does build and go to some strange and unusual places. And the big problem with The Wicker Man is the Neil LaBute movie surrounding him is just so pedestrian, you know? it, it does, It's not as manic and fevered as it should be. There, in one of
0: the interviews, Kate says, uh, the Wicker Man should have ended uh, with me in the bear suit. Then the absurdity of the situation would have been obvious to the audience and they could laugh with what was going on. Like, he was on the level of the movie that he was making, but the director did not raise himself to be where the story needed to be. Uh,
1: I also this week watched Leaving Las Vegas, his Academy Award winning performance, which I had never seen before. Uh, I hadn't seen it because it looked a bit like a chore. <laughs> well, it is a chore. <laughs> it is a chore, but, it, but you know, it's a pretty good movie. And I think Nicolas Cage is really spectacular in it. And I think it's one of his most successful experiments in trying to combine naturalism with... What he would call a more expressionist form of acting. In this movie, he plays uh, an alcoholic who's lost his job, has a totally hopeless life, and decides to go to Las Vegas to drink himself to death—literally to drink himself to death. While there, he makes the acquaintance of a sex worker played by Elizabeth Shue, giving a much more naturalistic performance uh, and very good in the movie, by the way. And they create a, a temporary bond. Uh, A bond that the audience knows cannot last forever, but will give them some relief during low ebbs in their lives.
0: And the thing about Nick Cage in this movie that surprised me the first time I watched it was that, like, he is Nick Cage. Like, there's no other performance he can give that would not make you think of the other stuff that he's done. It's
1: the same actor who made The Wicker Man.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the thing that is the most surprising about Leaving Las Vegas is that Nick Cage, as an actor... I think he's just a weirdo. It's funny that he gets to play like every man in stuff because he's not. Even when he tamps himself down, there's a kind of like an otherness in just the timber of his voice that yeah. he can never be like the classic star, even though
1: that's what he's been doing for the last like 30 years. He is like Klaus Kinski, where there's just sort of a otherworldly radiation that comes off of him and I mean it's only become more so in recent years whenever I see a Nicolas Cage movie in a theater now which is an increasingly rare occurrence Um, People all inevitably, invariably laugh when he shows up.
0: Why do you think that is? Is it because of all the memes they've seen and that they can only look at Nick Cage through this like filter of like, ah, he's a funny guy. Could that be why he does all those DTV films where he's like very boring and lame? It's because he's like, well, I want to let people know that I'm not always crazy. Sometimes I can be completely uninteresting.
1: At some point, something clearly broke between him and the audience I think it's maybe not a million miles removed from what happened to Tom Cruise and his audience. A star, you know, there's a certain amount of delusion there. Like the audience wants to buy into an image of a star. Uh, You know, Mel Gibson had a similar problem where, you know, when, when the illusion breaks, when you find out that this person is actually, you know, Uh, a little a little strange and you start to see this heroic figure cast in a pathetic light it's rather hard to regain that bond between them and the audience you know we've seen Nicolas cage getting into i mean there are just so many memes of him like being an eccentric guy we've seen him go bankrupt you know we've seen him make we've seen him make a left behind movie. Yeah,
0: I, I love this quote that I found that he said, which is he was at one point in the last like decade, he was reading a lot of philosophy and he said, oh, I had to stop doing that because nobody could understand what the heck I was talking about. And, you know, people would rather see me as an orangutan
1: than some eagle on a mountaintop. One of the uh, quintessential Nicolas Cage roles, in my opinion, of recent years was his small role in Snowden, the Oliver Stone movie. Never saw it. Yeah, I mean, don't. But there's a scene in that movie where Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Edward Snowden like visits this kind of eccentric guy who's like toiling away in the basement of the NSA. You know, I, I can't remember quite what the character was. And it's Nicolas Cage. And I think Oliver Stone cast him very strategically because he's this guy who, you know, he's too, he's become too crazy for the main floor. He was once, he was months higher up, but now he's in the basement. But you know what? Maybe, maybe he's still kind of brilliant. And by the way, when I saw Snowden, the audience laughed when he showed
0: mm. up. You know, I think the thing about Nicolas Cage is that when the expectation of him going crazy is like what everybody's waiting for. Essentially, he's the, like, I didn't do it, boy, at this point. Everybody's like leaning in their seat and they're like, all right, break, do that moment. And I don't think that really interests him that much. Like, he talks a lot about he wants to be an actor that has imagination, that he doesn't just show up and do the scene exactly the way that everybody would expect him to do, but that he tries to approach it from a different angle. Now, that pops out and looks incredibly odd at times. But, you know, if it's a good day, maybe it'll
1: genuinely be interesting and engaging in some manner. What makes me sad about Nicolas Cage these days is he doesn't actually surprise me all that much anymore. He still sometimes gives good performances, but they, I think, Often tend to be good in the same sort of way. Pop off way. Like you're waiting for him to be like, ah! Color out of space, the trust, mom and dad. Like he's committed in those movies. But look, I know that Nicolas Cage has never really disappeared into a role before. But there was a time when he could play a romantic lead, he could play a macho action hero. He could do something like Bringing Out the Dead where it's a very internalized performance and I'm not seeing him hit those sorts of notes anymore. I mean, it could be argued that like he's made a lot
0: of movies and a lot of them are like great movies. Like we could reel off like 12, 20 like great
1: Nicolas Cage performances. He's worked with so many of the best filmmakers and you forget it. He worked with Scorsese, Herzog, the Coen brothers, David Lynch, John Woo.
0: I love to hear stories like, you know, his performance in the Coen brothers movie They didn't really understand what he was doing, (laughs) like he's kind of deadpan throughout it. And that's a choice that works in favor of the movie that you could feel that it would be organic in the way that the screenwriters wrote it. But, you know, I think that he's still, you know, there's still probably a great Nicolas Cage performance out there. I'm excited for um, what will probably be a crazy Nick but in an interesting project, the new uh, Shion Sono movie, Prisoner of Ghostland,
1: that's coming out. Well, I liked him quite a bit in Mandy. I mean, it gives you those Nicolas Cage freak out moments. But the, big, the centerpiece scene in that movie where he, he really freaks out, I think it's so intense, it's so raw that it did surprise me a little bit. And he gave a very physical performance in the movie. Uh, You know, I I thought that movie brought out some interesting kind of notes in him.
0: So what you're trying to say is that you want to see Nick Cage in a romantic comedy of some kind.
1: Yeah, Captain Crowley's Mandolin (laughs) 2. Uh, Let's get trapped in paradise again.
0: Oh, man. Looking at his filmography, there's so many crazy movies that, like, nobody ever talks about. Remember that Top Gun movie he was in? Like, he had a period in the 90s where he was in a bunch of stuff that nobody talks about. I watched Zandalee. He was also in Time to Kill, Firebirds. But in between those, he had, like, Wild at Heart, Red Rock West, which was great. And then, like, a little bit later, leaving Las Vegas. So, you know, early on in his career, there was more of a balance between, like, one for them than one for me. And I guess at this point, he's been in the game for so long that, you know, people's perspective of him, like you said before, has kind of cemented and he can't escape this. You know, the kind of moves that they're going to give him are, like, primal. Kill Chain, Grand Isle, Running with the Devil, A Score to Settle. Movies that are essentially interchangeable between them. He also needs money. Yeah, he also needs money.
1: But I think I would also like to see him do another movie in the register of Joe. I think Joe uh, did a good job, you know, giving him an opportunity to do something a little more quiet, a little more internalized, while also tapping into the otherworldly strangeness of him as a screen presence.
0: Well, another movie that does that great is Adaptation, where you get like, Two Nick Cage's on screen and they are so distinct from each other that you're never like confused between both of them which is funny because Nick Cage is always Nick Cage.
1: So will I be seeing you at the next screening of Wild at Heart where we can all have a laugh will? I do like that movie. I'll come see Wild at Heart with you. When he shows up, uh we will we will recite all the lines. We will we will laugh at every single thing that <laughs> happens in it with the hooting royal cinema crowd. I do
0: love the idea of Nicolas Cage saying he likes being in an enigma that like people don't really know what's going on with him. He said stuff like, I just like hanging out at home, watching movies, reading books. I don't need to go out. My life just can't continue in that way anymore. So I don't need to find happiness, you know, in my own private life. That's why he's not on Twitter. He has no social media presence. He's just... Nick Cage, the idea of someone that you can never really get to know. Well, I hope he's happy. (laughs) I have a feeling he's probably not. Nick, if you're listening to this, give us a call. We would love to interview you on the Important Cinema Club.
1: Uh, Do we have any letters this week?
0: We do have letters. Our first letter is from Sinjin, and he goes, Hey, gentlemen. I believe you've already discussed this briefly, but I'm wondering if you have any more thoughts on the strand of new revisionism that you might encounter on film Twitter or even amongst the popular film writers. I revisited Dune recently, and while it had a lot of charms, I felt it was unequivocally a failure. However, I saw some unironic masterpiece comments on Letterboxd from high-profile writers and film Twitter personalities. Film Twitter personalities. Do you sympathize with the urge to rediscover maligned films? Is it just a reaction against the staleness of the official and unofficial canon? Is it hero worship in the case of trying to reclaim the turds in a Patheon director's filmography? Any particular example of this phenomenon that bother you or you agree with? Thanks, Sinjin. I think we have talked about this a little bit before, and the idea of like, well... Everybody wants attention and nothing will get you more attention than saying that you like something
1: that is universally disliked. Well, that's a pretty bad faith uh, reading of the situation, isn't Uh,
0: it? (laughs) uh, I think it's one that I can back up with um, evidence.
1: I don't know. When it comes to something like Dune, I mean, I do not particularly like Dune, but I like the aesthetics of Dune. And if I need a nap turn it on and fall asleep. The the aesthetics are good though and you know oftentimes frankly you are very influenced by a director's body of work like like if you know the later Lynch movies you may see things in dune that the original audience wouldn't have and just the fact that dune's reputation was so bad for so long you know much like Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Like, the fact that your reputation is so low will inevitably make it seem, like, better. There are a lot of movies where, like, they they were very abrasive in their day because they were reacting to a certain dominant culture. Like, okay, take a movie like, say, Freddie Got Fingered, which I, I think we both like. Uh, love! Yeah, that's a movie that was, like, you know universally reviled but but like looking back on it it seems very interesting because of that wave of gross out comedies that came out after there's something about Mary it was the one that consciously pushed it too far Mm -hmm. and so that's interesting and makes it and the fact that it failed almost makes it more interesting because the fact that society was not ready for it it's like okay what weren't they ready for why couldn't they take this
0: when I think of maligned films and people kind of trying to praise them it's usually from a perspective of something like Dune, which is an auteur that people like and they have classics, and then saying, oh, no, 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 but the ones that you don't like, they are also good. And I think that comes from a place, you know, maybe of honesty. You like the director's other films. Why don't I like these ones that this person that I love also made? And like, you can kind of trick yourself or convince yourself that you like them, even though most people don't. Or maybe you'll find something in it that nobody else saw except for you. Well,
1: but I mean, something like Mr. Arcaden, I like it because it like it has all the Orson Wells stuff in it, you know, and if you like a director's personality, you may even like them when they're when they're at their worst because you like you like those things.
0: Do you look for malign films to try to like
1: raise up? And be like, this is good. You should watch this. I mean, not consciously, but certainly I have seen maligned films in the past that I like and that I want to draw attention to. I think we both I think we both do. You wrote a book about Albert Pughin, for God's sake. Oh, I did.
0: Of course. And I think that like when you write about stuff that nobody else has written about, there is value there. <laughs> because like Albert writing a book about Albert Puin, if like a whole bunch of people had written a book about him, why would I have written a book? Like it's been and, done. And like when you
1: do something like that, like you're you're being polemical. You're 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 making a cultural intervention. You're be like you're being like I I I'm staking territory. This is something that more people should know about and should Yeah,
0: like. I absolutely agree. But I think that my book uh just to get on my high horse here, it's One that I'm very honest when I don't like his movies, which you don't see all the time when books like that are written by authors. Because there's the idea of like, well, I need to stake my ground and I can't show any weakness in my argument that this person is worth the time of people that check out his work. And I think that's where I get a little bit iffy is when like, you know, you read a review sometimes of somebody maybe you'll trust, but they have a certain obsession with a certain filmmaker or I don't know, a studio. And you read the review and you're like, OK, I, some of this stuff is just not true. Like I've seen the movie with my own eyes and ears.
1: <laughs> Well, listen, I want you to name names. I want you to show me examples.
0: I can't think of any examples right now. But, uh, you know, it is fun sometimes to read reviews and to be like, <laughs> I have no idea what they're talking about. Hoping that in your head, it'll be like, well, I've never thought about it that way before. And your new perspective has made me want to reevaluate this thing. And then you watch it. and You're like, oh, man, it still sucks. But hey, <laughs> listen, art is subjective. Oh, man, I bought Dune on Blu-ray because I'm like, I remember liking this, right? And I remember watching it falling asleep trying to watch it again. I fell asleep a second time and eventually I made it to the end and I was like, man, such pretty visuals.
1: Yeah, I find it a very tough set.
0: So thanks again for the letter. And if you'd like to ask us a question, you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we're talking about The Twilight Zone, the movie. The movie on
1: which three people died. You want to see something really scary, Will? <laughs> on our Patreon, we will determine was it worth it?
0: <laughs> no. Oh wait, I gave the game away. <laughs> so if you'd like to listen to that, you can check it out for $5 a month at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And this Friday, uh, we're going to be doing another Important Cinema Club screening. So uh, for Patreon subscribers, all you have to do is go to the uh, Discord channel and I shall post the link on Friday and we will all watch a movie together. So that'll be fun. It's a crazy action horror thing. That's all I'll say. And that I have a feeling that most people have not seen it. As a Patreon subscriber, you just don't get to hang out with us more. You also get free stuff that you need to experience in the moment before it's gone and will never happen again. So.
1: What are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we are heading to the art house. We are doing the great Taiwanese director, Tsai Ming Lang. Well,
0: buckle up, because it's going to be one hell of a ride. So
1: uh, we'll talk about, I don't know, uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn, perhaps. Um, I don't know. What are are some of the ones we should talk about? That
0: one where the monk walks in slow motion. (laughs) We've got to watch all the entries.
1: (laughs) I saw Journey to the West at TIFF, and I saw it. Uh, just just the great, the greatest way you could see it, which was in front of an old couple who didn't know what they were in for. And they were muttering all the way through about, I don't know, how, the, how can they justify this? It didn't really have the opportunity to cast the spell on me that it should have, because I got it with a mystery <laughs> science theater commentary, probably by an old couple who only saw it because they visited Taiwan once. Hey, we got to
0: watch The Wayward Cloud, his comedy drama musical that I hear gets a little
1: Sexy. Yeah, we should watch that. That was the first one of his I ever saw because I was a teenager and I wanted to see some skin.
0: <laughs> and that was the only way to get it. So yeah, we'll see those. I've actually seen uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn and The Hole, so I'm already a timing
1: lang expert. <laughs> Stray Dogs is very extreme. Yeah, listen, I'm already on this roller coaster. Just throw another loop to loop. I can take it. Justin, you gotta you gotta sit down and you gotta stare at that screen. That last I'm shot. Gonna
0: crack open my projector screen that i got right before this pandemic hit set it up lay back and watch it on the big screen like it was meant to be experienced
1: oh you're gonna have such a good time i love stray dogs
0: <laughs> all right so that's what we're doing next week and until then my name is Justin Clu. i'm will sloan thanks for
1: listening
0: hi justin here just want to interrupt for a moment to thank our new Patreon subscribers, who include J.R. Scully, M. Leckvie, and David Ramdonk. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. And if you'd like to join, again, it's at patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. The screening that I mentioned in the episode will actually be next Friday on May 29th, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can follow me on Twitter at J if you'd like some more information and you can also follow will at will sloan esq and if you haven't written a review for us on apple podcast or whatever other podcast catcher software you use i use podcast addict myself we would really appreciate if you did it for us and now back to the show there was a time when i was a teenager that it was like impossible to get hong kong movies on dvd i remember when Fox Lorber or was it like a Miramax subsidiary put out a bunch of films in widescreen. It was Eastern Condors, Magnificent Butcher, Operation Scorpio, Heart of a Dragon, City Hunter. No special features, but it was such a big deal that we could get them in like a HMV. Oh, man,
1: I I had all those, too. Uh, Magnificent Butcher, Warriors 2, My Lucky Stars was one of them. Just a weird assortment of movies. (laughs)
0: Whatever was on the shelf didn't cost too much. It probably just, like, knocked it off. Yeah, Uh, Iron Fisted Monk was
1: one of them as well. When I was a kid... Uh, I remember the school library had a book. Well, I I guess I was in grade nine. I wasn't exactly a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you were virile and not a virgin anymore. (laughs) Uh, No, in grade nine, I definitely was. Um, But... The school library had a book called The Unofficial Jackie Chan Encyclopedia, and reading it, it was just full of all these movies where it'd be like, how could you ever see these? It was so typical when we were kids to just, like, all that was available was, like, the killer meteors on a pan-scan DVD from Walmart. And then I
0: remember, like, in the UK, there was a label called Hong Kong Legends, which was, like, the ultimate... DVDs, and I was a teenager, and it seems so far away, like, I can't pay to get this and ship it to my house, like, I want the special edition of Duel to the Death, but I, I ain't gonna get it.
1: <laughs> you also would have needed an all-region Blu-ray player, too. Mm-hmm.
0: But now, as an adult, I am just amazed at all the great stuff that has only recently Started to be released by again UK companies when it comes to Hong Kong related stuff. And I, you know what, I'm gonna have to thank Criterion for this because when they did the police story stuff and they saw like the uptick in attention, it felt like every other boutique label was like. Whoa, whoa, let's get in here!
1: Oh man, 88 Films in the UK also does some pretty spectacular work. 88 Films is putting out a version of Armor of God 2 Operation Condor that has a uh, never-before-seen extended cut on it, 10 minutes longer.
0: No thank you. That movie is like 45 minutes too long. I
1: completely agree with you, Justin. I'm not going to watch the extended cut, but it's also like... They're doing God's work preserving that. I
0: mean, I remember seeing Once Upon a Time in China on like the crappiest DVD transfer ever. And now Eureka Films have put out like a beautiful box set with... Each uh, film getting its own little booklet that's, like, informative, critical, and funny. And the bonus feature of Once Upon a Time in China and America,
1: the sixth entry in the series. Ah, what a wonderful time to be alive. The other grave injustice of our youth was that all the or a lot of these movies, particularly the 80s and 90s Hong Kong movies, were bought by Miramax. And so if you wanted to watch High Risk, you would have to watch it in a version called Meltdown that only had English dubbing, was probably shorn of 10 minutes.
0: The funny thing about Meltdown is that the uh, Miramax version is actually more violent then the Hong Kong version, there's a whole bunch of extra decapitations that
1: happen in Well, it. I think the Miramax version does cut out a key shot, which is, so, <laughs> I, I, you already know what I'm thinking of.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm going to make my punch card and I get a free one after 10. <laughs>
1: At high risk, of course, was director Wong Jing's savage attack on his former star Jackie Chan. It starred the canto pop singer Jackie Chung as a... Jackie Chan-like superstar who pretended to do his own stunts and was actually a boozing womanizer off screen. And there's a scene in the movie where he's peeing and there's a extreme close-up of his penis, which is like a very tiny nub of a penis. (laughs) Do
0: you think Wong Jing uh, was a stunt cock for
1: that one? I don't think that shot was in the American Miramax version. (laughs) No,
0: there's no way that shot was in the American Miramax version. Another great thing that all these companies are doing is that they're including the original mono tracks because even when they were released in Hong Kong, remastered on DVD, companies like Fortune Star went in and added sound effects to the fight scenes that sound completely separate from what was originally mixed. And you could not get them unless you had it on VHS in any other version. (laughs) But there's still some that like, don't have official proper releases like Drunken Master 2 which has famously been butchered by Miramax and has never been available in North America or any English-speaking place in, like, a big, super-duper special edition. And I think that's going to change now. I think that a lot of these movies are coming out because Miramax technically doesn't really exist anymore. So that's why the rights are lapsing. And that's why all these companies are picking them up. And that's great. That's what probably allows such films as Fist of Fear, Touch of Death to finally get the Blu-ray release. Oh, yeah. That
1: they've always deserved. This is something I think we brought up a few weeks ago. But Justin and I proudly participated in the new special edition Blu-ray release of Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. The classic Bruce Bruceploitation film. Uh, Justin and I wrote the liner notes for it. T- tell them a little bit more about I it. I mean,
0: Fits of Fear, Touch of Death." I feel like I've spoken about it so much. It was a film that we included on the first Gold Ninja video release, featuring an introduction where we joked, "We're doing this because no one else will. <laughs> like, there will never, this will never appear on Blu-ray." <laughs> And then suddenly I saw the announcement that Film Detective, a company that releases mostly public domain stuff, and they do new scans, but they do no remastering on them, decided that this is they're going to put themselves in with the big boys and they're going to release a special edition of Fist of Fear, Touch of Death, a movie made up of... Footage from a non-martial arts black and white Bruce Lee film when he was a teenager, a random martial arts film that they keep calling a samurai picture, and footage that they shot at Madison Square Garden with Fred Williamson watching a match to decide who will be the next Bruce Lee, which at some point seems like a normal match. Others, people's eyes are being gouged out. The movie is a strange dream. (laughs) They did a new scan and remastered it, and there's a 30-minute documentary done by Ballyhoo Pictures, who are, like, the top when it comes to, like, special feature stuff, that is completely comprehensive, that interviews everyone involved in the movie. The screenwriter, the director, Ted Levine, who was the distributor at Aquarius Releasing, Ron Van Cleef, who appears in the film,
1: and Fred Williamson. What a time to be alive. If you had told me when I was a kid who just picked Fist of Fear, Touch of Death... Out of the Walmart bargain bin and was watching it and thinking, what what is this movie? Does anybody like what explanation can there be for this film? Now the the story has been told. I,
0: you know, this is a movie that I think for people who are like, I don't know if I should check it out. It features interviews with real karate champion Aaron Banks, pretending to interview Bruce Lee, who is dubbed to say stuff like, Aaron Banks, you are the true hero of martial arts. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So good, so good.